Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Let's be honest, so many of us have been stuffing down our feelings, eating our way through the stress of the last few weeks and months. I know I snarfed a lot of Halloween candy waiting for election results. And so this week on the California Report magazine, we thought we'd give you a break from the political news and bring you a show all about food. Oh, our shrimp are nice and pink. This is good. The California Report is celebrating 25 years on the air, and we've been digging into our archives to bring you some of our favorite stories about the last quarter century. This week, we revisit some of our most delectable adventures, from trying spicy ramen in L.A. to gigantic servings of Basque food in the Central Valley. The lamb stew is perfection. I can dream about it. Plus a fusion of Chinese-Mexican cuisine in Imperial County. We always ordered the chili, and but my sisters, she eats them all. <laughs> and the crispiest latkes and biggest strawberry donuts you've ever seen. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Gotham City may have Batman. Metropolis may have Superman. But Glendora, California, has the Donut Man. People line up at the window of Jim Nakano's tiny shop for what many call the best donuts in Southern California. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and it sits on one of the most historic roads in the country. Peter Gilstrap brings us this story from 2017. On this commercial stretch of Route 66 at 7.30 a.m. on a Monday, there's not a lot of kicks to get unless they involve donuts. And at Donut Man, there is one kick above all others. Definitely heard a lot about the strawberry one, and that's like kind of the iconic one if you look them up online or anything like that. Jason Abdallah is from Chicago. This is his first visit to Donut Man. I saw that tray just came out. How does that look to you? Insane. Absolutely insane. I don't know how you eat that. The source of this insanity is indeed the strawberry one, a shell of fried dough jammed with fresh strawberries drenched in a thick strawberry syrup. Since 1974, it's been the main attraction at Donut Man. My wife in the 70s, early 70s, she just said, we should go for the American dream. And we're thinking what kind of business. And she says to me, uh, I like hot donuts. That's how it all began. Though Nakano has survived a lot more than just 45 years in the donut trade. An East L.A. native, he and his family were sent to an internment camp in Arizona during World War II. During the Vietnam War, Nakano joined the Naval Air Corps. He made it through all of that to make a life in donuts. 
when you make these things, is it uh, like a sense of pride? I mean, yeah, because you know, you turn around and you see and you watch people's faces come up and they're like, oh my God, that thing's huge, it's massive. Employee Caitlin Johnson is laying out a fresh batch. The donuts glisten in the morning sun as customers goggle through the window like they're gazing at newborns. Just looking at them, you get hungry. So it's kind of like, you're happy because you know people look at it and they're like, oh my gosh, like I want one. During strawberry season, between February and September, Nakano and his crew of 36 are moving donuts as fast as they can put them out, baking around the clock. And you could eat that uh, in the morning, uh, you could eat it as a snack, and you could eat it for lunch because it's so big. You could use that strawberry donut for many use. Including glazed apologies. The strawberries have gotten me out of trouble with the wife so many times. Jim, a Glendora local, began coming to Donut Man 40 years ago. Donuts are fantastic. The people are even better. For Nakano, the feeling is mutual. I think that's one of the reasons I'm still here, is that the customers are just so good. We're on about third generation of kids sometime. So you, know, you see the grandparents and they say, God, Jim, bring in grandkids now and all that. At 77, Jim Nakano is still at the shop every morning at 6.30. He says he has no interest in retiring from the business of making donuts and of making people happy. For the California Report, I'm Peter Gilstrap in Glendora. Jelly donuts, jelly donuts are so good to eat. Jelly donuts, jelly donuts. I've been with the California Report for 16 of its 25 years. And for a lot of that time, I was the show's Central Valley Bureau Chief, based in Fresno. One of my favorite things to do while I was driving around reporting stories in small towns was to find out-of-the-way places to get really delicious food. And back in 2011, I did a story about a Basque restaurant a few miles east of I-5. It's been serving up gargantuan portions for more than a century. So I took on the tough assignment of sampling it for myself. It's so dark inside the Wool Growers restaurant in Los Banos, it takes a few minutes for your eyes to adjust and make out the long tables covered with red and white checkered cloth. Strangers sit side by side in the family-style dining hall. This is real food to me. They don't put a little spritz here and a twirl there. It's big, hearty food for people who work hard. That's Robert Jones, a photographer from Rochester, Minnesota. He discovered wool growers on a tip from the local visitor center and now makes sure to eat here every time he visits the area. The lamb stew is perfection. I can dream about it, you know, in my mind. It has a little bit of cabbage and carrots and potatoes. The, the lamb chunks are marinated in it. Since the 1890s, wool growers has served as a way station for travelers. It once operated as a hotel, providing a warm bed and a hot meal for people emigrating from Europe. Europe to the Central Valley. Basque farmers, originally from the Pyrenees Mountains bordering France and Spain, herded their sheep from the Sierra foothills down to the Los Banos stockyards and train depot. Your choices today are lamb chop, pork chop, baked chicken. Colette Eaterbead's family has owned the restaurant for nearly 40 years. Her husband does the cooking, her daughter is a server on the lunch shift, and other family members keep the books and do the bartending. Are you ready for your next course? And do you want pig's feet? Not everyone does. Newbies can sometimes feel the pressure from regulars to try it. 
like Richard Ryan traveling through town from Pacific Grove to Yosemite. You know, I've tried a little bit of everything. The chicken was fabulous. It just falls off the bone. Of course, the stew is just uh, heavily in. Pig's feet, I think that's an acquired taste. The food keeps coming. Platters pile up around your plate before you know it. Regulars pace themselves and bring doggy bags. Los Banos native David Pennington has been eating here for more than 40 years. If you're on a diet, you can only come here so often. But my cholesterol yesterday was good, and so here I am today. <laughs> We're not even on the main course yet, and I'm completely stuffed. I mean, all we've had is salad, bread, beans, the rice and chicken dish, lamb stew, and some wine. And I just can't imagine what I'm going to do when the main course gets here. I'm stuffed. How can we eat that? I'm not sure. We just serve it. The rest is yours. <laughs> you have to figure it out. While pouring what's left of his red wine over vanilla ice cream for dessert, a stuffed Bob Vizzolini says 16 bucks for 10 platters of food and a bottle of wine can't be beat. Well, you know, I've got good friends who don't want to talk about it because they, they want to keep it all to themselves. <laughs> but I don't mind sharing a little bit. Rolling out the door with my doggy bag in hand, for the California Report, I'm Sasha Coca in Los Banos. Next to a kind of cuisine that gives new meaning to the term fast food. In the late 80s, this cookbook came out. It was called Manifold Destiny. And it was kind of a big deal among traveling bands who would cook their meals en route to the next gig in a very unusual way. Think roasted chicken in a Dodge van or poached fish in a Pontiac. Back in 2002, Deborah Bear met up with the queen of engine cuisine. Holly Rizzo is pulling into the Huntington Beach Pier parking lot. She's driving a red 1986 Nissan pickup truck. As she opens the hood, a wave of garlic sweeps over us. It's coming from the engine. This looks pretty good. All right. Today we're going to have some lime garlic shrimp. Rizzo used piston power to cook up this dish on her drive up the coast. She put the tin foil wrapped shrimp on the engine in San Juan Capistrano, a 35 minute drive. Using tongs, she pulls out the two foil pouches that were nestled between bolts on the manifold of her engine. I double wrap my uh, food because I really don't want any of the drippings to get on the engine. So here we go. Our, oh, our shrimp are nice and pink. All right, here we go. Oh, this is good. This is good. Rizzo started cooking under the hood about 10 years ago when she was a traffic columnist for a San Francisco newspaper. She was inspired by a car cuisine cookbook called Manifold Destiny, now out of print. Her first forays into car cooking were simple and, she says, disastrous. A breakfast sandwich was lost to a pothole, a second one burned to a crisp in a traffic jam. It's a terrible, sad smell when it's coming into the cab of your truck to smell that burning bread. 
But soon she was a natural, preparing ham steak and sweet potatoes on a trip to a campsite in Arizona. She mastered fish and chicken dishes, even pork loin, a one to two hour drive, she says, perfect for, say, Riverside residents who commute to work in Orange County. And shrimp is one of her specialties. Well, pick one and I'll peel it for you. Oh, stop. It looks actually like you cooked it just right, not overdone. Yeah, I'm surprised. Don't because wanna... you know how they get rubbery if you overcook them. Mm -hmm. Oh, what do you think? Oh, it's fabulous. In case you're wondering, that offensive aroma of engine grease under the hood does not penetrate the foil pouches. The real trick to the fine art of car cuisine, says Rizzo, is knowing your engine. Every engine has its own personality. Some run hotter, some run cooler. If you have a V12 in a Jaguar, for example, that's gonna run a little hotter, and you may be able to get away with cooking things for a shorter time. If you'd like to test drive engine cooking, Rizzo suggests starting out with prepared meats to get the hang of it, maybe hot dogs or ham. Wrap the meat tightly in double layers of tin foil. Do not, by the way, try this with baked beans, they leak. Place the pouch securely on or near the manifold. Being curious about the culinary potential of my 1991 Saab, I invited Rizzo under the hood to take a look. Oh my gosh, look at all that metal in there. Deborah, this is beautiful. Oh, you should be able to do some good cooking on this. You might want to start with a nice ahi tuna steak. Just butter the foil and you can wrap it up in that foil tuck it under this little hose right here so it's secure over the potholes and you're ready to go. Rizzo told me to cook the ahi for 50 miles, give or take 10 miles. Now if you're not so inclined and are rolling your eyes about now thinking this is one of those only in California things, well meet Kelly Kennedy, a construction worker from Michigan who's vacationing in Huntington Beach. That's how we heated up our lunches, especially on the cold winter days. Potatoes, meat, wrapped in a tin foil and um, throw them on our car, leave our engines running or on our backhoes or whatever heavy equipment we were using and it worked just fine. Okay, so here's Holly Rizzo's garlic lime shrimp recipe. Mince up some garlic, chop up some chives. Combine with large raw shrimp in a double layer of tin foil smeared with butter or olive oil. Sprinkle with fresh lime juice, top with a couple slices of lime, wrap tightly, Place under the hood and cook for 35 miles, or until peak. For the California Report, I'm Deborah Bear in Huntington Beach. And now for some ramen noodles, made fresh at a place in LA's Little Tokyo that's famous for its spicy broth. It's called Orechon Ramen, and it's got a cult following among extreme eaters. That's because of special number two with the spiciest broth. In 2009, reporter Queena Kim went to check it out and tells us it's even too hot for the chef, Shigeki Matsuda. If you can eat it, you can get your photo put up on the wall. Orochon is a small, no-frills restaurant in Little Tokyo, where there's usually a line. The photos are tacked onto Orochon's wall of fame, or corkboards that line one of the walls. They're Polaroids, with stuff written on it in black Sharpie. I asked Matsuda to read me some of them. First, white person. <laughs> it's pretty much all Asians. Most of customers, our customers are Asian, that's why. 
Matsudo won't talk about Orochon's lethal recipe, but the broth gives part of the secret away. It's got the deep red color of cayenne or some sort of red pepper, and there are jalapenos floating on top. Judging from what the Wall of Famers write, there's a lot of ethnic pride wrapped up in the ability to eat the special number two. One says, Koreans are the best, and another says, go Wongs. It's basically a face-off between Chinese and Koreans, but no Japanese. Ironically, Japanese cuisine isn't really known for its heat. There are two Korean men sitting at the counter, and I think I heard one of them ordering a special number two. Not special too. Oh, not yeah. special too. Because a lot of people told me like this is gonna be crazy. If you eat special too, it's gonna be hurt. But you know, uh, you're Korean. Yeah, I mean, if it's not, then we can't, but there's a limit how extreme you can go. But, but this mean, is a know. Japanese restaurant. You're telling me that you can't eat the spiciest thing in a Japanese restaurant? I could, but I don't want to right now. I don't want to be hurt. We're hungry, we're just here to eat We're stuff. not a jackass. We just want to eat food. We're not a jackass. My name is Shintaro, and I'm working as a manager in this restaurant. Can you tell me one funny story, one story oh, here? I remember the one guy, he almost finished up, he drank straight. He drank the broth straight. Then back straight. Oh, he <laughs> threw it up? Can I say that? <laughs> that was KQED's Queena Kim, who was also the former host of The California Report. And now to a story from a reporter you're hearing from a lot these days. Tamara Keith, NPR News. Before Tamara Keith was covering the White House, she got her start on the California Report while she was in college. She worked on the show as an intern, a producer, and a reporter from Fresno and Sacramento. Back in 2007, she produced a personal essay for our show about converting to Judaism when she married her husband, Ira, and how his family introduced her to latkes. The potato pancakes Ira's mom, Andrea, and sister Shannon made were crispy and warm, dunked in applesauce for that perfect combination of grease and fruit. Tam asked for the recipe, and Andrea photocopied a page from a cookbook called Love and Knishes. The next year at Hanukkah, I followed the recipe exactly, but the latkes came out all wrong, like over crisp hash browns. Failure after failure led me to Manischewitz instant latkes. Just add eggs. Defeat in a box. Ira and I are married now, so it finally seemed okay to go back to my now mother-in-law and ask her what I had been doing wrong. The first step is easy, peeling the potatoes. So then what comes next? Next, we have to grate the potatoes the proper amount of smoothness and roughness. They have to be smoother than hash browns, but we don't want them to be completely mushy. Which none of this is actually in the recipe. No. The, the whole consistency no, no. thing. The, this is the magic of Jewish tradition and family tradition. This is what makes each family's latka personal to that family. So clearly following the recipe all those years was just setting me up for substandard latkes. Next come the onions, which Shannon and Andrea can't seem to agree on. Put in about one onion for every two to three potatoes, so... No, what about every four to five potatoes? Okay, we'll have an argument over how many onions per potato, so it has to be done by eye, and we'll just look at them. After the potatoes and onions are grated, Shannon puts them in a strainer and pushes out the moisture. 
yet another step not even mentioned in the recipe. Andrea and I add eggs and the dry ingredients. I just have to... And that looks like it's mixed about the right amount, which is mix well, however well well is. As we cook, Shannon and Andrea keep referring to them as poppies latkes. Really, the recipe they're following isn't the one in the book, but the one they watched Poppy make year after year. He was Andrea's grandfather. My mother was brought up with Poppy being the cook. Things that he made and the way that he made it were the things that my mother learned and the things that she passed down to me and the things that I've passed down to my daughter. Next, we take a blob of the potato mixture and put it in the frying pan, loaded with oil. That's another one of their secrets. Looks like you're doing a fine job. After several minutes of frying and flipping, the latkes are done. We put them on a plate with a paper towel to sop up some of the oil. And it's usually while they're sitting out there on the paper towel, getting the grease drained out of them, that they start to magically disappear. There's no resentment there at all. (laughs) It's just part of the tradition. And right on cue, my husband Ira appears in the kitchen and grabs a fresh latke from the plate. How is it? Hot. (laughs) (laughs) And now I, too, can make Poppy's latkes. No recipe needed. I'm in. Tamara Keith will be joining us for a virtual celebration of our 25th anniversary on December 8th. We'll talk with her and longtime host Scott Schaefer about their time on the show, along with appearances from other alumni whose voices you might recognize, like Elsa Chang and Kai Rizdahl. As part of the celebration, we're asking you to post photos on Instagram and Twitter of what the Golden State means to you using the hashtag the California Report. You can find out more at kqed.org slash events. If you've listened to the California Report for the last few years, you've probably heard reporter Lisa Morehouse on our show as she visits every one of California's 58 counties to bring us stories at the intersection of food, culture, economy, and history for a series called California Foodways. One of my favorite stories from Lisa is from the Imperial Valley, east of San Diego. No surprise that there's good Mexican food there. But what about Chinese food? What about Mexican Chinese food? In 2015, Lisa traveled to both sides of the border for this story about a cuisine called Baja Fusion. The Salcedo family sits in a coveted booth at the Fortune Garden restaurant in the city of El Centro. Myra Salcedo, her sister Marta Kramer, their mom and other sister are almost drooling, waiting for their food to arrive. We come all the way from Yuma, like twice a month just to eat here. That's Yuma, Arizona, over an hour away. A huge side order comes, light yellow, deep fried chilies. It's a dish I've never seen. We always order the chili, and but my sisters, she eats them all. <laughs> and their next order comes. The salt and pepper fish. It's like red fish. Sort of like a Baja style yeah. fish. The, the chili peppers and onion and stuff like that. Baja style at a Chinese restaurant? To us, it's like a, a fusion. Mexican ingredients with the Chinese. 
It's very different than if you go to any other Chinese, Americanized Chinese restaurant. And there's a reason for this fusion, one that dates back over 130 years. I'll get to that history a little later. And so yeah, you just mix it. For now, I leave the Saucedo family as they carefully mix Chinese mustard, a little spicy sriracha, and ketchup into a special, only in Imperial Valley dipping sauce for barbecue pork. When they order, they don't say barbecue pork, they say carnita. Yeah, carnita colorada. My name is Janessa Chao. Uh, I mean, my husband owned the Fortune Garden. <laughs> Zhao came to the U.S. from southern China, her husband Carlos from Mexicali, where he worked in Chinese restaurants. In the Fortune Garden kitchen, the cooks speak to each other in Cantonese, the waiters speak Spanish and English. You can see every table they have lemon. Hot sauce, Chinese food, you don't eat lemon, right? Those fried yellow chilies on almost every table, chili asado, they're served in a lemon sauce with lots of salt, kind of a margarita flavor. If you believe the rumors, some chefs marinate pork in tequila, and they serve pato asado roast duck with lots of cilantro. The restaurants that you see now are kind of the remnant of the Chinese population that used to fill the U.S.-Mexico borderlands in Mexicali and in Baja, California. Robert Chow Romero is a professor at UCLA. He teaches in both the Chicano Studies and Asian American Studies departments. Chinese started to go to Mexico after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the United States. In 1882, the Chinese were the first ethnic group specifically singled out and banned from entry into the U.S. So tens of thousands went to Cuba, South America, and Mexico. The Chinese invented undocumented immigration from Mexico, smuggling with coyotes. Guides hired to lead people across the border. And smuggling with false papers and in boats and in trains. The infrastructure for that was all invented by, by the Chinese. In fact, today's border patrol grew out of the mounted guard of Chinese inspectors. Many Chinese immigrants settled in Mexicali, becoming grocers, merchants, and restaurant owners. Others managed to smuggle across and make lives in the U.S., including Imperial County. A block from the border in Calexico, California, George Lim pulls up in a big truck. So how do you like our fair city? And drives a few minutes. We're at the international border, crossing into Mexicali. He lives in the U.S., but helps run one of the oldest and most grand Chinese restaurants in Mexicali, called El Dragon. There, he goes by Jorge Lim. Why not have a restaurant in the U.S.? I mean, population here, about a million. Imperial County's population is about 170,000. So just doing the math is, I mean, it's plain simple that you're going to have a lot more customers here in Mexico. And... I hate to say this, but people in uh, Mexico are more sophisticated. They're in the Imperial Valley about Chinese food. That sophistication may come from the decades of people eating Chinese food here, with some Mexican flavors. Seventy years ago, it was a necessity. Chinese cooks used Mexican ingredients like chilies, jicama, and certain cuts of meat because that was what was available. Now it's part of a culinary legacy like this new dish on the menu. Arrachera, which is the best meat for uh, tacos. Beef served with asparagus and black bean sauce. The meat's clearly Mexican. Asparagus uh, could be both Chinese and Mexican, but the sauce, the black bean, that's Chinese. 
And in a kind of Mexican-Chinese-American hybrid, there's an egg roll with shrimp, cilantro, and cream cheese. It seems like it shouldn't be good, but it is. And this is the only place I've ever seen avocado in fried rice. The California Report, I'm Lisa Morehouse in the Imperial Valley. And that's it for the California Report magazine for this week. We've got so many more food stories in our archives, and we'll be bringing you more over the holidays. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. Our director is Amanda Font. Our team also includes Susie Racho and Ariella Markowitz. Our technical producer this week is Seal Muller, who has engineered so many of our stories and has been with the California Report since the very first day, back in 1995. I'm Sasha Coca. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Earth Justice, a national nonprofit law organization fighting for the right to a healthy environment. Earth Justice, because the Earth needs a good lawyer. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Learn more at irvine.org. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, focused on finding exceptional people and helping them do more for others together. On the web at schmidtfutures.com. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.